0: Welcome to Emma's Almanac, a podcast hosted by queer settlers navigating decolonial healing through herbal medicine and myth,
1: queerness and magic, astrology
2: and ancestral connection.
0: My name is Rue McDonald. I use they, them pronouns. I'm here calling in from Lekwungen Territory in so-called Victoria, British Columbia and Canada. And I am a songster, researcher, educator and story weaver I'm the founder of Queer Directions Learning Center, which is an online platform for ancestor connection and lineage healing. I'm
1: Kenzie Kalik, she, her, a queer settler, witch, intuitive herbalist, justice advocate, sex posy educator, living in occupied Abenaki land known as Vermont. I also am a mother of a Scorpio, And the steward of Wild Faith Wellness.
2: And I'm Micah McDonald, uh, they, he, clinical herbalist, ecologist, and writer living in Abenaki Territory in Vermont. I think I would like to know, first off what you all are drinking for tea today
0: my tea is in the other room I have to go get it
2: (laughs) okay well what tea are you drinking
1: Kenzie well I'm so glad you asked because (laughs) I started my morning very early as a mother of a 16 month old drinking coffee it's so sexy coffee It's just like buzz gets you in. Then I came home from working outside with horses and I had some matcha. I actually had three cups of matcha tea, which was so fucking delicious. I just got a really like fancy new matcha powder mm. with some creamed raw local honey and almond milk. And it was so good. And now I'm onto it. My third um, caffeinated bevy called oolong tea. And it's like a little, lo- it's like, it has a stronger earthy taste and it's not sweetened but it is delicious and keeping me perky through these days with very little sleep yeah you're looking pretty perky yeah I'm feeling perky how yeah. about you Micah what are you drinking you
2: know I actually do also have three rounds um, my first round is my always round which is um, dandy blend with hemp milk mm-hmm. stevia I actually grew the stevia this year Um That's so it's great. Um, and then, second round was my um, uh, Lemon Balm Mother Wart Tea. Um, and then, my third round right now is Tulsi and Rose. What about you, Rue? I've
0: been really feeling like the warming herbs these days. And it's just really wet here, and it's a wet cold gets really deep into the bones. And so I'm, I have my chai blend here, warming up my bones.
1: Mm. I love that. Actually, (laughs) I was listening to blind, blind boy. Is that the podcaster in Ireland? So he's hilarious. And he was talking about how chai means tea. And so he kept being like so you're only supposed to say chai and not chai tea and then he continued to talk about drinking tai chi and he'd be like tai chai tea <laughs> and then was like oh fuck I, I didn't mean to chai 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 you know kept trying, you know we just it's true because i totally. definitely say chai
0: tea
2: so ru will you start us off with a story
0: yes we're gonna start off with the story grab your tea get comfortable you might want to lie down this is the story of the seal catcher and the selkies this is from a book of celtic tales from ireland scotland and Brittany and wales and so these are all from um stories from open source texts at this point so it doesn't actually say where Um, specifically the story is from or gathered from, but um, generally it's it's a Scottish folklore story. So once upon a time, there was a man who lived not far from the very north of Scotland. He dwelled in a little cottage by the seashore and made his living by catching seals and selling their fur. He earned a good deal of money this way, for these creatures used to come out of the sea in large numbers and lie on the rocks near his house, basking in the sunshine, so that it was not difficult to creep up behind them and kill them. Some of those seals were larger than others, and the country people used to call them selkies and whisper that they were not seals at all, but mer-men and mer-women who came from the country of their own far down under the ocean who assumed this strange disguise in order to pass through the water and come up to breathe the air of this earth of ours but the seal catcher only laughed and said those seals were the ones most worth killing for their skins were so big he got an extra price for them Now it chanced that one day as he crept up to stab one of these particularly large seals with his hunting knife, the creature gave a loud cry of pain and slipped off the rock into the sea. It disappeared under the water carrying the knife with it. The seal catcher much annoyed with his clumsiness and also the loss of his knife went home to dinner in a very downcast frame of mind. And on his way, he met a horseman who is so tall and strange-looking, and who rode on a gigantic horse. The seal-catcher stopped and looked at him in astonishment, wondering who he was and what country he came from. The stranger stopped as well and asked him his trade. On hearing that he was a seal-catcher, he immediately ordered a great number of seal skins. The seal-catcher was delighted, for such an order meant a large sum of money to him but his face fell when the horseman added that it was absolutely necessary that the skins be delivered that evening. I cannot do it, said the seal catcher in a disappointed voice, "for the seals will not come back to the rocks again until tomorrow morning. I can take you to a place where there are any number of seals, answered the stranger, if you will mount behind me on my horse and come with me. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) The seal catcher agreed to this and climbed up behind the rider. The rider took his bridle rein and off the great horse galloped, such a pace that the seal catcher had much ado to keep his seat. On and on they went flying like the wind until they came to the edge of a huge precipice, the face of which went sheer down into the sea. Here, the mysterious horseman pulled up his steed with a jerk Get off now, he said shortly. The seal catcher did as he was bid. When he found himself safe on the ground, he peeped cautiously over the edge of the cliff to see if there were any seals lying on the rocks below. To his astonishment, he saw no rocks, but only the blue sea, which came right up to the foot of the cliff. Where are the seals you spoke of? He asked anxiously, wishing that he had never set out on such a rash adventure. You will see presently, answered the stranger, who was attending to his horse's bridle. The seal catcher was now thoroughly frightened, for he felt sure that some evil was about to befall him, and in such a lonely place he knew that it would be useless to cry out for help, and it seemed as if his fears would only prove too true. For the next moment, the stranger's hand was laid upon his shoulder, and he felt himself being hurled bodily over the cliff and then he fell with a splash into the sea he thought that this his last hour had come and he wondered how anyone could work such a deed of wrong upon an innocent man but to his astonishment he found that some change had passed over him for instead of being choked by the water he could breathe quite easily he and his companion who was still close at his side seemed to be sinking as quickly as though the sea as they flown through the air. Down and down they went. He couldn't tell how far until they came to a huge arched door, which appeared to be made of pink coral studded with cockle shells. It opened of its own accord. And when they entered, they found themselves in a huge hall, the walls of which were formed of -of mother-of-pearl, And the floor of which was made of sea sand, smooth, firm, and yellow. The hall was crowded with occupants, but they were seals, not men. And when the seal catcher turned to his companion to ask him what all this meant, he was aghast to find the rider, too, had assumed the form of a seal. He was still more aghast when he caught sight of himself in a large mirror that hung on the wall and saw he also had no longer bore the likeness of a man, but had transformed into a nice, hairy, brown seal. Ah, woe to me, he said to himself, for no fault of my own. This artful stranger has laid some baneful charm upon me. And in this awful guise, will I remain the rest of my natural life. At first, none of the huge creatures spoke to him. For some reason or another, they seemed to be sad. They moved gently about the hall, talking quietly and mournfully to one another, or lay sadly upon the sandy floor, wiping big tears from their eyes with their soft, furry fins. But presently, they began to notice him and whisper to one another. Then his guide moved away from him and disappeared through a door at the end of the hall. When he returned, he held a huge knife in his hand. "'Did you see this before?' he asked, holding it out for the unfortunate seal-catcher, who, to his horror, recognized his own hunting knife, with which he had struck the seal in the morning, and which had been carried off by the wounded animal. At the sight of the knife, he fell upon his face and begged for mercy— For he had once came to the conclusion that the inhabitants of the cavern, enraged by the harm in which had been wrought upon their comrade, had contrived to capture him and bring him down to their subterranean abode in order to wreak their vengeance upon him by killing him. But instead of doing so, they crowded around him, rubbing their soft noses against his fur to show their sympathy, and implored him not to put himself about for no harm would befall him if he would only do as they asked him. Tell me what it is said the seal catcher, and I will do it if it lies within my power. Follow me, answered his guide, and he led the way to the door through which he had disappeared and When he went to seek the knife, the seal catcher followed him and there, in a smaller room, he found a great brown seal lying on a bed of pale pink seaweed with a gaping wound in its side that is my father said his guide whom you wounded this morning thinking he was one of the common seals who live in the sea instead of a merman who has speech and understanding as you mortals have i brought you hither to bind up his wounds for no other hand than yours can heal him i I have no skill for the art of healing said the seal catcher astonished at the forbearance of these strange creatures whom he had so unwittingly wronged but i will bind up the wound to the best of my power and i am only sorry that it was my hands that caused it he went over to the bed and stooping over the wounded seal washed and dressed the hurt as well as he could and the touch of his hands appeared to work like magic For no sooner had he finished than the wound seemed to deaden and die, leaving only the scar, and the old seals sprang up, well as ever. Then there was great rejoicing throughout the whole palace of seals. They laughed, they talked, they embraced each other in their own strange way, crowding around their comrade and rubbing their noses against his, as if to show him how delighted they were at his recovery. But all the while, The seal-catcher stood alone in the corner, his mind filled with dark thoughts. But presently his guide approached him and said, Now you are at liberty to return home to your wife and children. I will take you to them, but on one condition. And what is that? asked the seal-catcher eagerly, overjoyed at the prospect of being restored safely to the upper world and to his family. That you will take a solemn oath never to wound a seal again that i do write gladly he replied for although the promise meant giving up the means of his livelihood he felt that if only he regained his proper shape he could always turn his hand to something else so he took the required oath with all due solemnity holding up his fin as he swore and all the other seals crowded around him as witness and a sigh of relief went through the halls when the words were spoken, for he was the most noted seal catcher in all the north of Scotland. Then he bade the strange company farewell, and accompanied by his guide, passed once more through the outer doors of coral, and up and up and up and up through the shadowy green water, until it began to grow lighter and lighter as they emerged into the sunshine. Then, with one spring, they reached the top of the cliff, where the great black horse was waiting for them, quietly nibbling at the green turf. When they left the water, their strange disguise dropped from them, and they were now as they had been before, a plain seal-catcher and a tall, well-dressed gentleman in riding clothes. "'Get up behind me,' said the latter, and he swung himself into his saddle. The seal-catcher did as he was bid, taking tight hold of his companion's coat.' for he remembered how he had nearly fallen off in his previous journey. Then it all happened as it happened before. The bridle was shaken, the horse galloped off, and it was not long before the seal catcher found himself standing in safety before his own garden gate. And that is the story of the greatest seal catcher in all of Northern Scotland. Thanks, Rue. My pleasure.
2: And how does that story kind of tie into the topic that we're going to discuss today?
0: So today we're going to be talking about um, how we are framing decolonization as it pertains to this podcast. And this story we all decided was, one, to speak to this topic because It speaks to a worldview of our ancestors that is rooted in an animist worldview, one where there is accountability structures in place and there are nation-to-nation relationships with the non-human world. And these are stories that I can inspire. Our own ethical and political commitments here where we are, because it's an example of when someone makes a, a grave error where there is harm caused, and then there's this process of coming into accountability within a different sovereign nation where the harm to which the harm occurred and and then where that person who, you know, in this realm was very powerful and had a lot of privilege and ability and then caused this harm and then was brought into a totally different sovereign realm. Basically, they had to go through a process of mending the harm. They were the only one who could, who could mend that harm and subject to a different jurisdictional like sovereign body, basically, and then was returned home and needed to make amends even further for the rest of his life. So his whole life changed in in response to that um, harm mending, and I think it speaks to decolonization because one, it's a decolonized worldview of the non human community, as well as a helpful guide of what. Um, what accountability across difference can look like. Agreed. Yeah. I, I love
1: this story because it offers so many pieces for us to put ourselves in the place of the harmer and the harmed and really, what it feels like to be the person who's made the mistake and done the harm, and the process at which it does transform that person. Um, I I very much identify with and as a Silky and just the the place of going to this underworld and being in this incredible awe of majesty and respect. And I love that he was scared and that he was like, oh fuck. Like I really, that is my knife and the acknowledgement, you know, of like, wow, I'm in this world that is not mine. Um, and before he had such entitlement and such, um, place of ownership and capital gain from the, the violence that he was perpetuating and then seeing being able to actually be a witness to the beauty and um, community that was ever present, was always there was always and continues to be this strong, powerful community Um that he was never taught to respect and honor and see for what it was and what it is. Um, and that witnessing was a big shift, you know, and, and it was interesting too, because it was also this foreign experience where, you know, their embrace of one another and love for one another and celebration was something that was not an understanding for him and yet he could see the value and understand what he had to do um decolonial practices are layered and complicated and um i think another piece of this too that's not mentioned but is real is that i'm sure i'm adding that this this person is from a lineage of seal killers and hunters and and so there's been a lineage of violence, right? And that's something that, as white settlers, we're walking into. Where not only are we um, inherently causing harm by being settlers, but also we come from a lineage of of harm, and that continues to happen today. But also, there is just deep, deep trauma, deep violence that um it's part of our responsibility to heal as well um and for him it was changing his entire life's life his entire sense of self identity worth was dismantled in the process and that's definitely for me a big part of the work is what do i identify with and how do i how do i create value and how do i find um, a way to take responsibility and find new sense of values and unlearn the shit and and relearn what, what it really means to be human.
2: Mm, I like that. And also I like that in the story, the seal hunter was, he was the only person who could uh, heal the seal. Um, yeah, which is, I think, the same for us. Like, the... <laughs> The colonial violence is not going to go away unless we, each of us actively participates in, in, um, ameliorating that harm and, and not only stopping harm, but, um, but healing the wounds that have been caused in the past. Um, and, you know, before we get into the full discussion, I do want to, you know, have a rough, uh, definition of the terms that we're going to bring up just in case people haven't heard them or are not familiar with how we're defining them for the purposes of this discussion. Um, and those terms, I think, will be decolonization first. Uh, well, how about second? Because I think settler colonialism is what we're talking about generally. So settler colonialism and then decolonization and then also decolonial practices. Because I think um, we're... For this purpose of this conversation, we're we're differentiating the decolonization from decolonial practices. So,
0: and my understanding of settler colonialism is just like a very specific type of colonialism that um, occurred in the colonies where uh, s- citizens become like weaponized tools of the state as um, using just huge influx of population on stolen land in order to, and um, drawing on um, doctrines of discovery and terra nullius, um, basically these logics that are rooted in white supremacy and imperialist knowledge um, to justify bringing over large groups of, of folks, of settlers from other places as, as ways of like occupying land, um, which is also connected and like part of this process was um, disenfranchisement of Indigenous people from land. So this involved um, forcing Indigenous people here on Turtle Island to Give up land under duress, using tactics like um, starvation um, and and obscene violence, um, in order to provoke fear and um, and force uh, populations onto smaller and smaller portions of land, while using the um, while appropriating land in the name of king and country or queen, and then engaging in a process of of assimilation of the indigenous population. Does anybody want to add anything to that?
1: Yeah, I would like to add to that. um, It that process is pervasive within every aspect of livelihood. So as you mentioned, education and um, being able to um, eat traditional foods, essentially do anything, be in relationship to land, growing anything, being in relationship to animals. I would also add the um, forced sterilization of people's and the medical trauma that continues today, Um, uh, resettlement schools, stealing children. I mean, it really is in and on everything. Um, And the the part that um, I... Very much see as a connection to what we're doing. What we're talking about is the connection between decolonization and decolonial um, practices, and that we're being particular in this context because decolonization, from what I've learned from my teachers, um, inherently is in relationship to rematriation and repatriation, which is returning land back to Indigenous people that has been stolen and continues to be stolen from peoples. Um, and always setting that as the priority and the precedence, and then decolonial practices being the work of healing um the relationship to the land itself um by all people, and the conversations and the work that we're talking about in this particular context between the three of us is our own work of decolonial practices within the context of um... Herbs and um, respecting and um, being mutual, working with mutual aid, um, and all pieces of what it means to heal ourselves.
2: Yeah, I, I'd like to add a little bit to the settler colonialism. I think one of the things that I think about with regard to settler colonialism is um, erasure that the point of it is to erase people from the land in order to steal that land. Um, and so erasure looks like murder, but it also looks like stealing culture from people in order to label them as um, the same as the colonizers that are stealing the land. Um, so culture... Um, you know, cultural erasure of indigenous peoples is also part of colonialism, and so that's why decolonization and decolonial practices are involving um, regaining that culture, and and so reiterating that decolonization itself is giving land back to indigenous peoples, um, and I think part of the decolonial practices um, that I there's a lot like I don't I don't think any of us can speak to all of it um and you know indigenous people themselves are the ones to speak to this um but the things that are on my mind right now that are some pieces are you know regaining language because language speaks to um how a culture views uh, the world and the cosmos and um the order of, of reality and, um, yeah, just the sense of, uh, time and space is all represented in the language and other pieces are regaining, like you said, uh, food traditions, traditions of relationship to the land, um, governance systems, spirituality, myths, gender relations, healing traditions, and a lot more. Another thing I want to say uh, right up front is that, you know, I guess my motivation for engaging in this this discussion is that a lot of people are way, way, way farther along in this process than me. And I want to be clear about that. But I also, for those who are not yet engaged in this process, I, I wanted this conversation to be an offering to make it less scary and to see that other people are are doing it and, you know, in a way. There's like a lot of ways to do this. But I think for myself, I, you know, uh, we all have the fear of the unknown and <laughs> there's like a lot of questions in this process. And I think um, when we talk about it openly, when we express our anxieties and fears about it, when we kind of like lay out the, the problems that we've been experiencing this process, like for me that to see, uh, to witness other people in the process makes the process less frightening to me. So that's why I wanted to like have this episode basically and talk about it.
1: Thank you. I also want to add, I'm intentionally speaking just for myself around intentions is that this is not us telling anybody how to do decolonization or decolonial practices at all. We are not teachers We are speaking from our individual experiences of the work that we are intentionally doing on a daily basis, as a daily practice, and that I am constantly fucking up and making mistakes in the process of learning and unlearning and leaning on the edges of what is so painful in this um, as a settler, as a person with a pretty intense violent history of my ancestors and um what we're sharing is from our hearts and what we're sharing is from what we are deeply what I am deeply trying to change about the current paradigm this is history it's also happening right now in real time um and so the intention for me is to share my own story of how, how anyone, how it is our responsibility and our accountability, just like in the story to show up and do the work and do what's hard to make it happen. And what leads to joy and pleasure, because we're actually embodied in a way that no one can be. If, if, if someone is perpetuating that violence, you cannot be in a place of love.
0: I just wanted to add one more thing. I guess we're calling from different countries, right? We're coming from different uh, across, we're talking across this imagined colonial border. And I just wanted to speak specifically to the foundation of like Canada as a state um, and its roots in like the Hudson's Bay Company um, and the motivations of settler colonialism uh, here being largely economic and in like the Uh, Royal Proclamation of 1763, they just like listed what Canada was going to be for, which was economic exploitation of land, navigation, and like, so military and economic exploitation. They just like set it right in there. We have, we have that evidence. It's very obvious. Um, And also the administration of governance in so-called Canada started out as Hudson Bay company, like outposts. And so it, Canada literally was founded from a a giant company, giant industry.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and that really speaks to the connection between colonialism and capitalism, Um, deeply foundationally connected.
1: I want to ask all of us to just take a deep breath um, and notice what we're feeling because I just want to share that my throat is constricted and my heart feels like it's racing. My eyes are hot. I have heat. I feel anger. I mean, that's the first thing that always comes up for me individually. I'm angry. I'm fucking angry and um it's really um i have been patterned to speak from a very like uh logical and um i think it's really really important to define where we are and speak to the history and that's what we're offering today and it is so important to feel what it feels like to be who we are We are born to this place, and it's important to feel it. So, I'm offering for people to take a moment to just breathe it in.
0: How are you feeling, Rue? I also feel this tightness and and anger whenever I talk about colonization. I get pretty fiery and pissed off, and and, um, and I just in my studies, I've just accumulated so much knowledge in order to have conversations with people, um, about this topic exactly, and have felt this need to become super learned and super intellectual about, and know all the different, you know, things that to argue my points of like why colonization is so bad and, um, have felt the need to have like a perfect definitions and perfect um, understandings and knowledge and I'm just reflecting right now on um, who, how do I want to have this conversation? I think I want to acknowledge yeah these these roots and and have a strong grasp of the history and to understand that it's a this colonization is a process um, it's this like growing, cascading process that's happened across space and time in all these really really different ways and as is decolonization decolonization is also a process it's not an event and um i think that decolonization is the rematriation of land and for the purposes of this podcast i want to focus on decolonial healing and what is decolonial to me is the process from which um empire and how it shows up in my everyday life the systems that I'm dependent on you know I think about the sewage system I think about like the all the different infrastructural systems that I'm dependent on physically as, you know, dependencies on on empire, just dependencies on the state, and as well as all the logics that I'm dependent on in order to uphold my privilege um, as a white settler in so-called Canada. and. So then decolonization for me would be the undoing and the de-investing and the developing a kind of sovereignty. I'm going to talk about sovereignty a bit, I think, today. what the, The quality of sovereignty that is not dependent on these logics of white supremacy and imperialism as well as these systems that are, are literally physically causing harm to the land on which I'm living. Mm. So I want to look at decolonial healing from this very wide holistic lens. Mm.
2: Yeah. And I also want to say a little bit about what you asked us to do, Kenzie, which is feel into our bodies. And, um, I think this, this topic brings a lot of shame for me. Uh, you know, I feel a lot of guilt. I feel your classic white guilt. Um, and in the past, that has caused me enough fear and anxiety to just avoid the topic when I can. And I know that's a problem. Um, I know that that prevents me from Doing any meaningful action on this topic um, and the shame is causes me to freeze and you know avoid and one of the things I was talking to my friend about is is what is required of us in this process of decolonization and uh, and by the way, I'm talking what I'm going to say in general in this episode and I think what we're all who we're all trying to speak to is like settlers of European background um, specifically those people who receive white privilege so in that regard I think in in order for a colonizer to engage with the process of, of colonization they have to inflict harm and there's no way to do that without incurring harm on one's own soul and the way we deal with that and to the way we just cope with the harm that's going both directions is to numb ourselves and so we numb to all feelings basically eventually and i i have definitely been f- Feeling that for for a lot of my life, and shame causes numbing, guilt causes numbing. So what I, I you know in my own life, what I'm discovering is that in order to engage with meaningful decolonization work and uh, and de- decolonial healing, I have to stop numbing, which means to open up myself to feeling. The pain of the other side. And it causes anger, like both of you were um, expressing, and sadness too. But I, I think part of the process for me is that having empathy and compassion with those people who I and my ancestors have harmed um, is completely 100% necessary for this to be a meaningful, soulful process. And in the process, we regain our humanity. Because I think we, when we numb ourselves, um, we stop being human. And that's happened to a lot of us. I, I think we've lost a lot of our humanity. So what we have to gain is... Our humanity back. We we have to gain is our ability to feel compassion and to feel all emotions. But it does require us to step into pain, at least temporarily, um, and that that pain is a bridge between the two nations, the colonized and the colonizer.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I really feel that I that brings up. Um, something we spoke about spoke about in the last episode which is grief and the story of Arvid and how with her brother's passing she grieved and cried her eyes out and that grieving was a source of healing not only for herself but it brought 365 plants to life you know and that our our collective white settler culture has this fear of death and we're not going to go too far deep into the colonizer culture of Christianity because it's so layered. And I am a very spiritual, um, connected and God respecting and God loving person. Um, and death has been so disconnected from, our reality, and so our our cultural practices of grieving has been totally segmented and disconnected, and um, such a big part of this process is the grieving and the crying and the feeling. Just like Micah was speaking to and Rue was speaking to, we have to feel. And I would also add, which I think is, um. I feel like it's really problematic. And the hardest part for me is the compassion for my ancestors and the forgiveness of my ancestors. Like, even as I say that, I'm like, fuck that, like, fuck those people. But at the same time, it's like, how do we heal and move forward if a part of ourselves we hate? So for me, a lot of my part of my decolonial healing is the ancestor altar. And um, looking at our ancestral trauma and the lineage of sexual violence and the lineage of, um, I mean, each of us has a relationship to different aspects of that violence. And how do we grieve that and and see the other side of, of that process too, where joy lives and the seeds grow?
2: yeah i also want to um just state some of my anxieties in even talking about this subject because um uh it is easier for me to stay silent and just like hide in the corner and let other people do the work here and um and the work looks different for every person that's that's engaging in in decolonial practices but um I really, really, really fear saying the wrong thing. I fear, um, getting called out. I feel, I fear being reprimanded, you know, all the, all the classic stuff that (laughs) comes with right fragility, right? And that's okay. Like that's part of the process. And this is what I'm learning. You know, I'm telling myself this right now. (laughs) Um, but, uh, so, Uh, We can move through it. We can practice. We can make mistakes and get better at it. And um, I also fear one of the the fears of talking about it, uh, part of it is I worry that talking about this in public centers like um, white settler voices in this discussion and who should be really talking about this and teaching this is indigenous people, which is correct. However... I also think that in order for more white settlers to, and and just settlers in general, to be thinking about this and talking about this and having it at the in the front of their minds as they walk down the street and go to the grocery store every day, um, we just have to be talking about it more. And it might feel more approachable if different kinds of voices start talking about it, including, you know us as queer settlers and, and that just offering different, different perspectives that uh, some people can, can hear and receive more easily. And then from there go to other voices. What, what do they have to say? And uh, specifically going to um, indigenous peoples themselves and learning directly from them. So that's one of my fears. And that um, also, a centering centering white voices on this, but B um, being performative, and which you know we've talked about that um, in our kind of discussion before. This podcast is um, a, a lot of white settlers on this topic, but also other topics um, often try to perform or make obviously visible their um, advocacy and their allyship. Uh, especially in social media, and that that is not always, it is sometimes empty, basically. And so it is drawing attention, instead of doing actual work. So that's another one of my fears. Um, and yeah, anybody want to say anything about that?
0: Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing up fears. I really do have very similar similar worries and around, um, yeah, this issue of like taking up space in the, in the conversation of decolonization. And what I would offer, um, is like from my perspective that, like you said, we do need to be talking about it and, you know, indigenous people, BIPOC people can't tell us how to do this shit. (laughs) We need to all be talking about it so that we can figure it out together and like create systems of support for white settlers to be communicating with each other, um, doing the kind of the work together and supporting one another in, um, in learning and sharing what knowledge we do have while keeping a accountability loop. With the voices uh, of Indigenous and BIPOC people who are who are leading these, um, and offering really, really tangible, really helpful calls to action. So responding to those calls to action while cultivating these practices of what I would call cultural resourcing, something that I definitely um, have been in in activist circles is like a hungry ghost um and hungry ghost who like isn't willing to vulnerably self-implicate just like like i already know everything it's all great <laughs> i don't have anything else to learn you know i'm here to be a badass activist it's like well pause <laughs> this is an ongoing process and the and the hungry ghost um feeling is one of like lack of groundedness and lack of like real resourcing and skills to stay calm and grounded in stressful situations, in situations where um, my white fragility was getting triggered. And what it means to not become a hungry ghost is to become fed. (laughs) And how are we feeding ourselves and in community lifting each other up um, to learn and grow and become resourced a big part of that for me is looking to the ancestors like Kenzie was talking about is having that ancestor altar connecting with ancestral stories and ancestral ways of engaging in the world and that feel good and right for this time and this place Um, developing strategies for staying grounded um and developing a strong sense of self and culture I think is really important um in order to not be constantly trying to like grab and take and coming from a place of scarcity I think for me I was really coming from and I think still in some cases come from a place of um scarcity of like I don't have enough um trying to fill something in myself coming up from a place of of an empty cup and where what i want to be doing what i realized <laughs> during my work was that i want to be coming with a full cup i want to be coming with stories i want to be coming with um groundedness and ways that i can just really be a lot more accountable a lot more um a, a better listener and a lot more aware, self-aware of, of like how I can be truly helpful <laughs> um, and where I need to back off and where, like, where do I need to be putting my energy and where i found it is, is in doing this work that we're talking about, this decolonial healing and creating cultural resourceness. Um, because what I learned was that you can't actually access compassion Neurobiologically, if you're triggered and stressed and coming from that place of scarcity. And so I want to be cultivating in myself and supporting other folks um, to develop those skills to come from a place of, of groundedness and compassion more consistently. More like it's not going to always happen, right? Like this is a process of healing, but more consistently in our work and translating that into informing really grounded um justice oriented liberatory work i want to bring in my gratitude for us
1: talking about this today um i also um share that same reservation or concern for this conversation um and i think that's why it's right right the intuition says to talk about it, but the mind says to stay silent. Um, I also, that scarcity is a form of white supremacy culture. And, um, I come from a white savior culture from, um, our family lineage. And, um, that piece that for me is the hardest to find compassion for. And, um, I think also I have a pat of I have a pattern that I'm working on of othering white people that aren't woke enough, who aren't doing the work enough, who are um, saying the wrong things, or, um, and that the source of compassion is that embodiment, as Rue mentioned. And I just want to drop the book. Um, My Grandmother's Hands by Resuma Menachem, because it not only speaks to the history of violence and trauma, um, but it also offers practices of how to be embodied and when being triggered, how to come back into the body. Um, it's been a very profound book for me and, um, I think the other piece that comes up for me too that I've been learning from my current teacher, Kenya, who does um, queering reproductive justice um, as a birth worker. Um, they talk about centering, about how, depending on what space you're in, it's a dance where if you're in a space where you are the only white voice, it's about knowing when to take the space and when to give it up. When there's harm being caused, it is the job of the white person to call that in, but it's also the job to take the pause and to listen and to actively listen as Ru was speaking to. And it's so hard to learn how to do that. It's a big unlearning process. And um, I think there's also this paradox around either stay silent or talk over everybody. You know, it's like, oh, I have everything to say or I have nothing to say at all because it's not perfect yet, right? Um, so it's interesting. I feel like a lot of what I've been learning from, from King Yah is around that dance around when is it your place and how to stay accountable for yourself um, and waking, when making mistakes, acknowledging, feeling the hurt, moving on. Keep moving, keep the momentum, and keep that self-love and self-care at the center of the work.
2: I also want to I want to talk a little bit about the hungry ghost that you mentioned, Rue. Um, when you say the word word hungry ghost, that makes me think about that. Oftentimes, us white settlers, especially if we don't identify with um colonizer culture if we're you know radical or left in any way um or even those who are not um we we don't identify with colonizer culture and we look to other cultures to tell us to give us their cultures and so cultural appropriation and stealing cultures can be part of the picture even when we're not meaning to do harm by that um and there's, like, a very broad scale there from, like, uh deeply racist <laughs> cultural appropriation to the opposite, you know, thinking that uh European American culture is inferior to all other cultures, which <laughs> I tend to be on that side of the scale. But that feels like a hungry ghost place to be coming from, where we don't feel like we have enough, so we have to take from other people. And so because we don't feel like we have access to beautiful and um, profound and meaningful pieces of our own culture. And that's something that I've been like spending a lot of time on over the last six years is um, I've noticed that pattern in myself of cultural appropriation and just um, feeling that other cultures are better than mine. And that has, yeah, led me to really explore the cultures and I've loved that a lot and I've gained a lot from that and I also feel like the last six years in particular I've spent a lot of time learning about my Irish ancestors and that's been so profoundly healing um, to know that my ancestors my European ancestors had an indigenous cosmology of their own and and non-colonial ways of being. That's really meaningful to me and I think there is um, an understanding that part of the process for settlers especially white settlers to um, engage with decolonial healing is to learn who their ancestors were before they became white because whiteness is it's an empty space there's nothing there except for capitalist colonial culture and that culture is harmful, as we've been talking about. And I just want to clarify that I understand whiteness to be this pseudoscientific construct created by colonists, um, having zero biological legitimacy. But whiteness does have social legitimacy because uh, racist systems grant privileges to quote-unquote white people whiteness is what was left after our European ancestors were colonized by patriarchal imperial forces, when they were robbed of their indigeneity and had nothing else to identify with besides the colonizer's culture. Because essentially all of our European ancestors at one point or another were themselves colonized. So to go back to before our ancestors became this kind of like Homogeneous, capitalist, colonial mass. Um, what was their indigenous cosmology? What kind of practices did they have? What did their spirituality look like? What were their relationship with nature? Um, what did their governance systems look like? What languages did they speak? What was their music like? What did they eat? You know, all of these things that I just find um, really beautiful because then you begin to understand that there is an option other than uh, colonial capitalist culture. And there is the option of exploring that and um, finding meaning in that and allowing you to define yourself by something other than uh, colonial culture. And at the same time, another thing that I just want to mention briefly is that when we're reclaiming ancestral wisdom we have to do that carefully too uh i think there is a problem of americans specifically but any any european diaspora of claiming the um the heritage in a way that is actually culture appropriative um and potentially hurtful for the people whose culture that actually is. And I've seen this a lot in following kind of Irish paganism uh, groups and um, Irish people specifically saying, like, okay, that's fine. Just be careful what you're doing. Um, and it's important to, yeah uh for myself i you know claim irish heritage but i'm not an irish person and there's some things that i don't claim or say about um irish culture because i'm not that you know there's um i can't claim certain things so i think we also need to be careful about um that aspect
1: i think what's also comes up for me as we navigate the spiritual lens of decolonial practices, is how the paradox seems to be so um, present all the time. Like, oh, you you can't do other people's culture, but then you can do you can um, be in relationship and learn what your ancestors were. Oh, but you're not actually from that place. So you can't really actually learn. And it's like, wait, how do I how do I navigate this? And my deep spiritual teacher, Reverend Kyoto Williams, she says the paradox is the truth. So I think that it's all this dance. And that as we make mistakes, as harm is done, um noticing and feeling in the body and processing it, and just as it as Rue said originally too. This isn't a process. There isn't a pill to take. And now we're decolonized. There is no answer. It's about the process. It's about the healing. And I think a big piece of it too is what, where we are coming to this story is the lens of queerness and how that's a big part of us collectively. Why we three are coming together and coming from that lens being a part of the healing process so i guess asking each individual to ask themselves what what are the aspects of nature that i connect to and where are ways i can lean into my edges when i feel uncomfortable and lean on those connections for support and answers Oftentimes, our ancestors speak in whispers, and they're louder when we are in nature. So asking ourselves to go to those places to hear them.
0: It made me think about um, the power of naming and the power of investing meaning in place in, in as we're relating to place and going to these sites, recognizing that they already have histories and we're walking into a story that has been going on without us for a really 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 long time and not to be you know start naming a place and claim that place as like your new pagan site that's not what this is about right this is this is about um the both and and the pluriverses that we are, are developing together and tending these these cultural emergence in that the reality is that decolonial practice is going to be different everywhere you are because you are in an embedded web of relationships um, and those relationships will be informing how you move forward in the work and being responsive um, to to those relationships will then inform a, a whole, you know, myriad of ways in which Um, decolonial healing will happen in every different context it's very contextual and I think it also speaks to the ways that and like the spirit of animism um, dispersed and persisted in our bodies in our lived experiences in all these different ways it went underground it went into subterfuge and um, continues to you know, live in, in us um, as we exist on the land. And so it's really, don't, it's, I think it's important not to get caught up in like naming and, you know, saying like, this is, this is the place that I've spiritually connected with and now it's mine. It's, or, or it's like, if I don't have it, it, it goes back to that hungry ghost thing, that scarcity model like no 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 we carry this with us um even if we invest you know spiritual meaning in a place um we need to be willing to move on be willing to be responsive to feedback from indigenous folks um and not develop this kind of entitlement like that's part of the of the coming into right relationship i think is is releasing entitlement um and the need to name and have things be static and knowable very queer
2: well, you know that that really brings up for me a, a struggle I've had for a lot of my life. Is I want, I want to identify with the land. I want to feel part of this place. And as a settler, that's really hard. Like, am I? How do I belong here if I'm not supposed to be here? And um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm still exploring that. Um, and I also think about that European settlers. Um, when a uh, colonized people has to move um they're unrooted they're ungrounded they're unlanded and th- uh indigenous people identify with the land and so there's some kind of like umbilical tear that happens when we get displaced when we get colonized and are asked to move out which is ha- you know happens to a lot of european diaspora people for different reasons um and so it's it's just such an interesting, like I said, paradox where we go to steal the land of other people and cause again a displacement. But when we have when we own that land, quote unquote, we're actually still disconnected from it. We don't identify with it. I I see European settlers um, here on North America really living very surface level lives. Like they they're not rooted anywhere. And there are exceptions, of course, you know, but still, um, I'm really interested in the idea if, you know, if we steal land, but don't identify with it, what if we identify with it, but don't own it? You know, what does the opposite look like? And I'm, I'm like way interested in that. (laughs) I I don't know what that looks like, but, um, I think what I want in, in, for my own spiritual well being and growth, and I think it can tie in well with decolonization and decolonial healing is to kind of learn how to merge my soul with the land in a way that's not doesn't involve ownership uh, and it doesn't involve any kind of claim it's um, it's something else um, something more spiritual and and communal and um, that kind of brings me to maybe the last thing i want to say is that i feel like just you know the last couple weeks i realized that this like engaging further in decolonial healing and decolonization is kind of the missing piece to my spiritual practice yeah it's it feels really huge it it seems to be at the intersection of all of the things I care about, uh, both my political wishes and also my spiritual wishes.
1: I absolutely deeply resonate with that in terms of the labor as a white person, the labor and the accountability is the spiritual path. And that the more we Process that grief, the more joy and connection to Creator, God, Goddesses, magic, miracles, um, possibility, and the less of a grasp we need to the perception of um, truth, and instead being in that relationship. Um, in a way that is regenerative and joyful
0: makes me think of sovereignty a lot I think about sovereignty quite a lot I recently did a um, offered a, a course that was all about different sovereignty figures I think because I have this background in studying um, colonization and settler colonialism and similar to how Micah was talking about just a real fascination with learning um, about my own cultural moorings. I became pretty interested in learning about the ways that sovereignty is uh, and nationhood. Sovereignty and nationhood are embodied and uh, were embodied and were um, established and conceptualized of uh, within indigenous like cultures that lived. Indi- more indigenously than my lineages do in present day and what i found was we have the kayak who is like this primordial ancient earth being who is geological time who is the, the bestower of sovereignty um, because she is the land and is this old crone type being that is also often seen in these stories as the purveyor of of justice and accountability and the balancing of scales between the human and non-human world the other world and and the human realm and so in the stories we can find all these ways of engaging in the landscape in a way that's Animist, like it's an animus landscape and one where these stories they share values of of respecting the agency and sovereignty of of the land itself and uh, it makes me think of the land defenders and water protectors who um you know they have been very vocal about um being called protectors and defenders and see and framing themselves as the land itself rising to protect itself and so that's something that I I really find important to think about is the ways that we are interacting and relating with land as well as the sovereignty of of other indigenous nations, like um, from my from what I understand, and Micah could definitely speak to this in more depth, is that you know Celtic culture was not imperialist. They spread the culture, but every different sovereign body was not governed by an overarching empire. It wasn't empire building. It was sovereign nations um, up against one another in a lot of places are growing. But then also, that sovereignty was something that was constantly in conversation, constantly a dialogue and a back and forth. Um, there's the story of the Tain Bokula. Where of the um, stealing of the cattle was a common thing <laughs> across different nations, and this was just a constant thing. people uh, between these different communities was this back and forth of of both establishing sovereignty and sovereignty being connected to um, fecundity of the land and of um, and of wealth and um, ability to have abundance, um, and was in constant conversation. There wasn't just, these are the boundaries and they're here forever. It was not like that. Like they were constantly shifting and changing.
2: Yeah. I'll speak to that a little bit. Um, this is actually the stuff that I have the most nerdy fun with. So I could go on this forever, but I'll keep it short. Um, (laughs) Celtic cultures, however, we use that word, which is used to describe like a somewhat similar language and culture group. Um, mostly, peoples who share a art form called Latin. Um, the Celtic cultures, quote unquote, were all tribal, which means that they had no state, um, and the That means that there's no enforcement body outside of the tribal group, really, or whatever alliances the tribes create with each other. And I know the most about Ireland, you know, so I can't speak to the other um, tribal cultures of this group. But what I find the most fascinating about ancient Irish culture, you know, uh, that would be Iron Age and back... There, It was anarchic in some way, which means that there's no state body. There's no enforcement body. There's no police force. The, the tribes themselves were constantly morphing and moving with changes in migration and alliances. So yeah, the Celts were not imperial. They never had an empire, but they certainly fought against the Roman Empire. And then going back to the sovereignty piece in Ireland, and I'm sure in other places, um... Every chieftainship um, slash kingdom, like a petty king, um, w- had sovereignty goddesses with which they mated, uh, you know, metaphorically or mythologically slash spiritually mated. And that mean and the goddesses live in sacred places. Um, I've learned the most about the goddess Anya um, in Munster. And the king slash chief mates with her often on the summer solstice in order to when he becomes, uh, when he is coronated, in order to signify that he is married to the land. Whatever befalls his body is directly tied to the health of the land. Um, and there's all sorts of myths that tie the king's health to the health of the land. And there's a sacred marriage between an indigenous human governance system and the land itself.
1: You might hear a little baby cries a little bit, but it's kind of cute. It's interesting how we all come to the practices of um, decolonial healing from different lenses and Mine has been through um, sexual education, reproductive justice, and um, really understanding the history and the lens of that work and how to dismantle white supremacy within the framework of sexual education and incorporating um, mythology and folklore into sexuality. And when thinking about sovereignty, talking about reclaiming the body and also talking about when we're talking about language reclaiming language of the body as well so a lot of the sexual organs were colonized and named by european cis men including fallopian and um, bartholin and um, even the g of g spot was a white european man And so a big piece of language, the use of language when describing, especially our sexual organs, um, and reproductive regenerative places, um, which is a source of creativity and intuition. How can we reclaim that language as well and be really intentional also knowing the history of medical bondage and, um, like I mentioned for sterilization, but I think that, um, Mike and Rue have been down this path of being in right relationship to Irish heritage much longer than me. Um, and a lot of that has been the veil of, um, colonial violence has made, um, I guess the linear sifting and almost like swimming upstream of the history of violence, especially of um, in these mother baby homes in Ireland, but also um, the Catholic history of sexual violence against children within the church. Those things have been really preventative for me to feel any kind of um, connection um, and vulnerability and forgiveness to my lineage. And some, and to be honest, a big portion of what I've learned has come from Micah. Micah wrote um and is writing um a trilogy about um, that's centered in pre-Christendom Ireland. And Micah can speak more about that, but what's been really empowering for me about it is that animist perspective. And I think a lot of the, I guess, two things. One, the hungry ghost that's come up for me is also knowing it from the herbal lens and how there is deep-seated cultural appropriation within American herbalism that is so fucking problematic. And the majority of authors That are revered in white Western herbalism are men and are appropriating mostly from indigenous cultures, and also are like, I'm saving this indigenous culture from being going away because I'm bringing, like, there's literally that language that's being used that is so deeply problematic. Um, and so even within herbalism, I have been a a proponent of cultural appropriation um, by learning from white people, for instance, traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda. And um, really the f- steps, and I think I mentioned this maybe in the, the previous podcast has been um, to be in my own pleasure, be in relationship to my own pleasure and my own body. Um, and also to literally sit with the plants to literally be in relationship, to get to know Yarrow, to get to know St. Jones or St. John Ward, to be with these plants in a way that recognizes their their spirit. And and a realization that came to me a couple years ago in that process it was just kind of happening intuitively sitting with these plants outside um and realizing that my ancestors in ireland were in relationship with particularly those two plants um also mugwort and um and one last thing about the folklore and relationship to sexuality is that mugwort is named after artemis artemisia vulgaris artemis the goddess of artemis and she's the goddess of The hunt and what's really cool and about her is that she is acknowledged as a virgin as the virgin goddess but what's interesting about that is that the the language of virgin before meant sovereignty of one's body and so she was not didn't necessarily mean she didn't have sex it more meant that she was not owned by anyone. She was not um, anyone's property. And so I also want to create, to bring in that liberation around the body and sexuality that, um, that, that aspect of virginity, being in sovereignty of my body and being in my own pleasure and prioritizing pleasure as an act of healing.
0: Embracing being in pleasure feels really connected to grief for me and like the spectrum of um felt sense uh, of what I'm able to hold in my body Mm. um when I when I work with grief and I work with um tending the grief of my ancestors and doing this lineage healing it really does open up like this range of, of also pleasure and joy. So I really do thank you for naming that. I think they're so, so deeply connected. I wanted to talk about story and how I engage with story and how I feel it is like part of decolonial healing. Because I know that a lot of folks look at these stories because what is being passed down, you can be assured was the words of a man or like often would have been the words of a white man usually. Um, and often a lot of what is recorded of our um, ancient ancestors was written by the colonizer. And so there is a lot of translation work that um, I know that Micah does and I do too. When we engage in these stories, there's a process of trans- translating them from what we see and these texts and keeping as as keeping the details as close as possible of course but also like needing to breathe new life in, in, into it needing to be part of a living breathing culture I think is is working with these stories and finding them finding the healing in them for sure and um something some ways that I've done that well through the aramid story like we said there that story is only a few sentences um and and when i worked with it 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 blossomed into this larger story when it began to grow flesh and tendons and bones and um i think that's an important process of cultural reclamation and um and cultural production that we do as we're tending this really interesting cultural edge of decolonial healing through this witchy queer um, lens, and as well looking at these stories um, from our, you know, intellectual uh, paradigms that our modern intellectual paradigms don't always serve us. Um, I. I want to look at stories as if they are a dream you know and all the beings in the story are like characters in a dream that maybe I am part of or I've had and each different character is a part of self that I'm learning from and that's something that's so beautiful. I think about story is that all these all these archetypes and these narratives they speak to human experiences at this really really basic um, level. Um, that's, that's deeply personal as well as very very broad and can give us this uh, way of of connecting with these harder to look at parts of ourselves through story. It's like a little bit more removed. It's a bit safer. And also, these stories are part of these lineages that that do have these really beautiful, these, hold these beautiful gems of uh, and these glimmers of how to move forward in a decolonial way, and that is also yeah. I don't know. It excites me. It gets me. It gets me stoked when I hear the story, like the seal story, that speaks to an animist worldview it's just really exciting because my ancestors preserved those those traditions and those stories enough for them to be come into this book that I have now it's actually kind of miraculous (laughs) given the level of colonial violence that was experienced over so many so many generations and um through through processes of of like the church, you know, saying, you know, you're not allowed to worship in oak groves. You are not allowed to worship the wells, the sacred wells. You are not allowed to worship in in nature, basically, or at stones, right? That's what was outlawed was was worship around stones, trees, and wells. And when we see that, we're like, oh, that's that's maybe where I should be paying attention. <laughs> these are things you didn't want me to do. There must be a lot of power there, and there must be power in that animist relationship with the land. It's these little clues that we find in these stories, that then we flesh out and and expand and and weave into our and into our lives, and where we can find our inner sovereignty and, and power rooted in, in lineage.
2: Absolutely. I love that. There's definitely power there. So we've been talking for more than an hour now, and it sounds like we have a lot more to say. I'm wondering if we want to pause here and come back for a part two.
1: Fabulous idea.
0: Yeah, let's do that. And um, here are just a few invitations to practice to top off this first uh, session we have here. Uh, we talked a lot about staying grounded in the midst of of stressful conversations and that being a really important piece of, of this work. And so I'm just going to offer a few grounding practices that I use and uh, invite you to try them out. Um, and so the first one is just to tune into your senses, to take some deep breaths, And begin to notice five things around you and their colors and perhaps their texture. And then tune into four things that you can hear all around you. What's the farthest thing you can hear? And what's the closest thing you can hear? And then to tune into your, your felt sense. What are some textures that are perhaps up against your skin? Three different things that you can touch in their texture or their temperature. And then things that you can taste. I have the leftover taste of my licorice tea in my mouth. <laughs> and so that's one is just to become really aware of your environment. And part of that is like I, as somebody who experiences hyper arousal, I like to do a full 360 look around where I look literally all the way around me. I look behind me and just reaffirm, not just intellectually, but somatically that I am safe. That I am safe. And another one that I'll add is just to... Um, is you can really, really slowly close your hands and squeeze them. You can try this out at home if you want. And then you slowly open them back up. And that's just telling your nervous system that we're moving slow right now. You don't need to move fast. This mm-hmm. is just letting, letting everything know that we're safe. And part of going slow is indicating that we don't need to be moving quickly right now. We don't need our adrenaline rushing through our through our blood. And one more that I would offer is that sipping water. Um, if you're noticing, you know, you come into a, an experience where you're feeling hot, feeling flushed, right? You're feeling like you can feel your heart rate start to get a little high. You can just grab your water and just really slowly take small sips of it And that again, similar to the hand thing, is actually letting your nervous system know that we're moving slow right now. You have tons of time to drink all that water. You don't need to drink that water fast. You can drink it nice and slow. Kenzie, do you want to add anything?
1: I love those. I can't stop recommending My Grandmother's Hands by Resmaa McKenna because many that you just mentioned are in his book. The other two, I would say, is humming and drumming. patting, using your hands to make rhythm, and using your voice.
2: I'm also, I'm a walker, so um, Mm. I diffuse tension primarily by walking, and that works really well for me. I often like to listen to or play music as well. Mm. Great. So I'm going to put a few resources in the show notes if you're wanting to learn more about what we talked about today, and uh, we'll be sure to share even more resources uh, as the discussion continues in part two. So we will see you soon in part two of this conversation.
1: Toodaloo!